Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Weeks of classic films. From 1998, film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight. Yes! Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident, self-assured style. Lex Luthor in Superman. What is it about Gene Hackman that... uh... His performance, it's off the charts, but still in reality. Fiendishly gifted. 1981, Sam Raimi Opus, The Evil Dead. Oh, yes, fine choice. Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have. Charade. Oh, so Directed by Stanley Donnan. It's a textbook screenplay. It's just effortless, and there's not a wrong note in this movie. Can't say enough great things about it. We'll be back next Friday with an all-new episode of The 430 Movie, wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us now for The 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. If you're a fan of Inglorious Trexperts, you're going to love Trexperts Briefing Room. A Trexperts new Briefing Room? What is that? I was about to explain, then you interrupted oh, me. I'm it sorry. Is, it's curated audio commentaries of classic Star Trek episodes from the original series all the way through Enterprise. You're going to love it as we explore the behind the scenes making of all these wonderful Star Trek episodes with cast and crew that you would never expect to hear doing audio commentaries on Star Trek. Sounds like fun. It will be. And you can <laughs> find it on the Inglorious Trexperts podcast feed and on the new Trexperts briefing podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's go see what's out there. If you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. My new book, Secrets of the Force, is now available in hardcover, digital, and audio from St. Martin's Press. And check out my other great oral histories with Ed Gross of Star Trek, The 50-Year Mission, So Say We All, The Complete Oral History of Battlestar Galactica, and Nobody Does It Better, The Complete Oral History of James Bond and Spymania, all available in hardcover, paperback, digital, and audio wherever you buy your books. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And uh, today uh, we're going to talk about uh, something that uh, we haven't spent a lot of time talking about in the past, and I'm glad that we're going to honor such a significant figure in Star Trek history. Of course, I'm referring to the um, sound designer and sound editor, the late Douglas Grindstaff. Uh, Douglas uh, passed away at 87 years old back in 2018, he was an Emmy nominee for his work on Star Trek. And uh, he's a legendary figure in the history of the show. He gave it its unique sounds and and, uh, was just amazingly uh, uh, creative and imaginative and um, uh, came up with extraordinary, you know, we see on Making a Star Trek, you know, Ben Burt tapping, uh, Making Star Wars, Ben Burt tapping the uh, phone line to get the the blaster fire, right? Remember that? That was probably my first time where I ever said, wow, that's how they do sound? Yeah, um, And uh, But Doug Grindstaff was doing this back in the 60s yep. uh, with stone knives and bearskins. <laughs> Something uh, like that. You know, cutting and mixing on analog tape long before anybody had ever heard of uh, 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 digital or... Well, or, absolutely. Um, and, you know, one of the great things about, uh, about this is that 
you know, for all the uh, the visual style of uh, Star Trek and the uh, amazing design by Matt Jeffries and others, um, a huge part of the success of Star Trek creating this world is the sound. Because there's nothing more iconic than, you know, walking onto the bridge of the Enterprise and hearing that sound and, you know, the sound of a communicator chirp opening and, and all these sounds that have become uh, imprinted on, you know, certainly our minds from, you know, from when we were little. But all these sounds are immediately take us to the world of Star Trek. Yeah, when I talked to him back in... Uh 2016, 2017, I think. He had so many great stories. Everything from creating the sounds of the neural parasites in Operation Annihilate with um, a bunch of kisses or um, the tribbles, which were the sounds of many, many doves cooing. Um, uh, just, just such great, great stories. And of course, these sound effects are so iconic. I can't think of another show where um, you could release an album purely of sound effects yeah. from the show and have people buy it. But um, years ago, I think it was GNP Crescendo yep. put out a CD. All it was was sound effects from Star Trek. What a great thing that was. Oh, my gosh. When that came out, I was over the moon with excitement and uh, you know, having these pristine sound effects uh, on their own was really, you know, an, dare I say, an ear opener. Yeah. So- <laughs> Well, you know, this is another testament to Gene Roddenberry. We've talked a lot on the show about, um, you know, when it comes to the original Star Trek, Gene Roddenberry set a very high bar, and that's why the show is as good as it is. Putting aside all the mythologizing and all the myth-making, he really uh, was pushing to make the greatest show possible. And uh, uh, that came to the sound as well. My One of my favorite stories that Doug tells... Um, is the sound of the hypo when they were looking at it. And, you know, Spock's injected or one of the characters injected with a hypo. And Gene says, uh, where's the sound effect? And uh, Doug says, um, well, uh, 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 the injection of a hypo wouldn't make a sound in real life. He's like, but in Star Trek, it, it would. Yeah. And of course, that's one of the most memorable sound effects. You know, who could imagine the hypo spray without that, you know, you know, uh, sound effect? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's magical. And the the sound effect is uh, permanently welded to the imagery. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I think also was brilliant about uh, um, uh, Doug, in addition, you know, he was working on the show from the cage on, but yeah. um, that he also involved uh, so much of the music department. Absolutely. Uh, particularly uh, um, uh, Jack, um, uh, what was it? Uh, you know, Jack on his... Uh, what was his name? Cookland, I think, on the Hammond or- organ. Yeah. Who helped create so many of the different sound effects which were created by the orchestra. Yep. Um, and uh, that was amazingly, amazingly um, effective. Well, um, it's, in- it's interesting because, uh, you know, the idea of using the organ, which, which can make, you know, a lot of strange sounds that no one uh, really can recognize, um, that goes all the way back to, uh, you know, uh, Orson Welles and the... Uh, and the Mercury Theater uh, doing War of the Worlds. You know, the sound of the Martian heat ray was basically played on a Wurlitzer. Uh, yeah. So it's it's uh, it, very related to old time radio and the the ability to take something from nothing and uh, make it something that uh, immediately connects to our uh, our our inner ear and our uh, our deep thoughts about what things should sound like. 
And it's funny you mentioned War of the Worlds because, of course, the photon torpedoes yeah. are um, a variation on the Martian death ray. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Again, by banging on a, on a, a taut wire. Uh, it's really incredible. And, you know, now in the age of Pro Tools and digital and, uh, you know, a lot of people have these enormous sound effects libraries, uh, you know, in, in drives uh, where they're not going out and doing these elaborate sound design. But uh, what he, what, what Doug Grindstaff and his team did is absolutely remarkable and often overlooked um, by people who only, you know, acknowledge the contributions of maybe Gene or the actors or in the case of you know, some of the writers, but um, uh, like Jerry Finnerman, you know, like Gene Kuhn, like a lot of these other people we spotlight on the show, you know, it's a real pleasure and honor and, and uh, I think important part of the legacy for us to share with you uh, the late Douglas Grindstaff and his brilliant work on uh, the original Star Trek. So uh, I apologize in advance. Some of the recording, this was done by phone. He was already too ill to do it in person. Uh, so it, 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 the recording is not pristine, but uh, you certainly should be able to, to hear it uh, clearly enough uh, to enjoy it. And um, uh, we'll be back after uh, we have this, uh, share this conversation with, between me and uh, Doug Grindstaff with you from uh, 2016. Hey, good morning to you, Doug. I appreciate you taking a few minutes out of your day to talk to me about something you did 50 years ago. The accomplishment speaks for itself. I mean, the fact that here we are after all these years and we're still talking about it. And of course, Ben Burt paid homage to it and his sound work for the new movies. I mean, it, it's talk about something that stands the test of time. Can you take me back to the beginning and maybe tell me about... Um... I'll tell you when I first heard about it. I was over at Golden Studio. And I was working on a show called Swinging Summer. And I'm trying to remember the gal. It was her, it was a show with three of them. They were gorgeous. And she had, was noted for her hair and everything. She was gorgeous. <laughs> and, and anyway, I broke the show down and the phone rang. And I'm just through, I just finished breaking the show down, the feature. And Desi Lou was on the phone, the head of the department. And he introduced me on the phone to Gene Roddenberry. And I guess Gene had heard about me or something. And they needed someone to come over and help them on Star Trek. This is the original pilot. So I came over. I, I, I turned over the show I was working on to a couple of my friends. And I introduced them to the producers and stuff. And made a nice transition. And I went over and worked on the first uh, Star Trek. One night, Gene didn't know I knew anything about sound. And they were having sound problems up there and everything. And I remember, uh, this guy who worked for Gene, one of his assistants, came in and he just saw a movie I had done called One Potato, Two Potato. I had done a lot of work on that show and did the sound and had a credit on it for sound, which that was probably my first sound credit I had, I guess. So anyway, to make a long story short, she <laughs> said, can you help us out on the sound? And I said, yeah, I can give you a little advice and help you out. Because I was basically working on the picture and stuff on the original pilot. And so I helped him out a little bit. And then I uh, came back and worked on the second pilot. And in the meantime, we did a couple of shows for Gene. A thing called Police Story, which was a little half hour thing. He had worked on the police force 
uh, in narcotics. He wrote stuff for them. And I don't know if people know that or not. And he's been a pilot, I think, for Pan Am or something. Right, Pan Am, that's right. Yeah, but he was the nicest guy. I gotta tell you, he just, he just sucks you right in. Where <laughs> <laughs> way I could put it. And then I worked on the second pilot, and of course that stole. And then I did Mission Impossible and a few other things and everything. I like television. I uh, worked on about 90 different features, but only for a couple of weeks at a time or three weeks or something like that. I just, I like the movement of the television and everything. And that was always intriguing to me. But I went to work on the first series of Star Trek and about seven or eight shows in or something. I all of a sudden look and I see somebody's name on there, Joe Sorokin or something. About the first seven or eight episodes. So I handed my resignation in. I said, bullshit. (laughs) He's never around. He doesn't do anything on the show. Not much. I'll tell you this. I went up and I was in the, what was his name? Senior Vice President Desi Lou at the time. Oh, Herb Solo? Uh, yeah, Herb Solo. And I'm in his office. Door opens. King Roddenberry sticks his head in. He says, I don't care what you have to pay me. I guess he thought it was all about money. <laughs> you know? And he says, I want Doug on the show. So, <laughs> on the first pilot, oh, I got to tell you this. On the first pilot, the head of Desi Lou comes in. Of post-production, sticks his head in and says, I want you off the clock because you're costing us too much money. <laughs> and Gene stuck his, he didn't see Roddenberry there. Gene stuck his head around the door and he said, whenever I'm on the lot, Doug's here. <laughs> that guy got fired at the end of the year. And I liked him very much. He was a nice guy. But, uh, I don't know, he just, he, he didn't do stuff. Anyway, so when we started the series, Gene was really into sound. One episode that Gene liked very much, he sent me a memo with 11 pages of notes, handwritten notes about the sound. Now, I've talked to many people since then about sound on Star Trek and various things, and they don't get it. Mm-hmm. They don't understand sound. They just don't get producers, whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's one reason. I like sound. When I was in the fourth grade in school, my brother and my uncle bought me a thing to make sounds for radio shows. And when I got a chance, my that same brother was in charge of Fuse Productions. And he called me on the phone and he said, how would you like to go to work in the motion picture industry? I thought, I don't know. <laughs> I, think, I think my mother was afraid I was going to become a beach bum. <laughs> Do you remember if like Gene pointed to certain movies that either he wanted to imitate or avoid, like Forbidden Planet? There were a couple of movies of the era that had had notable sound uh, in, in the sci-fi genre. And was that something, because I know like with Alexander Courage, he said avoid doing that kind of music that they had in Forbidden Planet. But were there influences or were you sort of inventing it from whole cloth? Well, I'll tell you. Roddenberg wanted me to paint the whole show like you were painting a picture. And he wanted sounds everywhere there was. You could put a sound. I used to, I one time asked him, don't you think we're getting too cartoony? Because, you know, I just felt that it was, should be a little more dignified, but he wanted a sound for everything. Mm-hmm. He 
all sorts of noises going, everything. He says, Doug, I'm missing one thing. And I said, what's that? He said, the doctor gives him a shot, and I don't hear the shot. I said, a shot you wouldn't hear, Gene. He said, no, 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 no. This is Star Trek. We want a sound for it. So I turn around to the board, the mixing panel, and I said, do you guys have a, uh air, air compressor here? They did. So I fired up the air compressor, squirted it for a long enough period by the mic, went upstairs, played with it a little bit, and then put it in the show. And Gene loved it. So that's how Gene was. He wanted the whole thing painted with sound. He didn't miss nothing. <laughs> and there are obviously some other iconic uh, sound effects uh, throughout all three years of the show, like uh, from certain episodes, whether it be the Tribbles or the Gorn from Arena, the reptilian creature. Can you tell me maybe sort of the origin of some of these iconic sounds? The Tribbles. I went down to his office and they showed me them. They would show me what they were going to do. And I uh, took a dove. And I started out with a dove, and I played with it. You'd slow it up, you'd speed it up, you'd turn it backwards, you'd take a razor plate on the mag. We used mags. When I came in, the sound was optical. When I was working on Star Trek, it was magnetic film. Mm -hmm. So we used magnetic film, and I would use a razor blade. I would use scissors to cut it. I would use uh, sandpaper, or I'd use uh, emery board, or I'd use, uh, you name it, steel wool, anything that I could do to make things work. And you could take a sound, and you could speed it up, and speed it up again, and again, and a new sound would come out. I swear to you, <laughs> do that three or four times, half a dozen times, whatever, and this new sound, and I use them over and over, and that's the way I'd do them, because we didn't have, I had one guy, Jack Cooperly, I'll never forget him, he had an organ that was rigged with things to make sounds. I got the studio, big deal, they let me bring this guy in with his organ rigged to make sounds and everything for I think a half a day or something. That's all they would kick in the money for. I mean, we made those shows for like 180,000, 185, I don't know. And that, Cooperly helped me. I made loops of some of the stuff I needed and then he would make stuff and then I would adjust it to fit or and then play with it, speeding it up, slowing it down, mixing it with other things and so forth till I had what I wanted. And so, I don't know, I don't remember too much about this stuff. But. Well, what people don't remember is this is an age, decades before things like Pro Tools and the computers and, yeah. I mean, the way, you know. They kept telling me a synthesizer was coming that would make all kinds of stuff. And they had it on uh, Star Wars. <laughs> Bird had it on Star Wars, but I didn't. I never saw one. I saw a couple of organs and stuff and they were nothing they couldn't do anything it was so disappointing and so you were know. you flattered i don't know did you see the new star trek movies that ben burt paid homage to i mean it opens with you know it, it's completely your sound effects for the original star trek uh that he's emulating um you know no, I'll, I'll tell you the only star trek i've looked at lately is these uh, amateurs do them. 
Oh, the fan films, right. The, the, yeah. Now, you didn't watch Next Generation or any of the other shows or the movies, but you watched the fan films. What was what was the rationale behind that? Well, why, what was your attraction to looking at those? Well, I knew a guy who uh, did the sound on, and he used to send them to me. He still does. And so I get them, and I'll look at them once in a while, but I've never really thought. When Roddenberry was going to do the first feature film on Star Trek, I was running a department with about 10 television shows for Paramount. <laughs> and I just told him, I told the director, I said, you're going to have to convince him I'm not going to do the sound. I just can't do it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, who worked on Star Trek was in charge of the department and I was running the sound and that was it so I turned him down but I'd been to his house and parties and stuff he was the nicest person I can't get over how nice he was you know he was just one of the nicest producers I ever worked with I mean, he really was I mean, it's interesting because you were really, you were inventing the wheel as you went on. I mean, there was no, there was not, you know, uh, n nothing to imitate. Uh, nobody had ever done a show quite like this. And uh, I imagine it must have been a challenge to really, you know, sometimes uh, to, to, to come up with the, uh, the the sound for some of these. That was it. I, I got it down to a system. And from the first, the first season, we had about 10 editors. Mm -hmm. And I said, this is ridiculous. I can do it with three editors if you give me good men and myself. That's all I need. Get the others out of here. And I had an assistant editor. I had three editors and myself and we did the show but what i would do i would create the stuff and then they would put it in mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it just worked we got it down to the system and when i took over this department for paramount and had all these television shows i had mission possible series i did the original pilot on it so i knew him and everything and when i told him i was going to do it with four guys he said doug you're nuts <laughs> oh, wait and see. I'll show you. You know, and we did it. Why do you think after fifty years we're still talking about Star Trek? There's so many shows of the era that have faded into obscurity. You know, if I would only known, I would have kept stuff like you wouldn't. Think. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't realize it. I was so busy working on the thing, you know. And Gene was. Uh, uh, they all felt that Gene Roddenberry and I were so close that that uh, nobody would challenge me on the stage. I'd say no. They figured Gene had okayed it, <laughs> and he would. He'd come up in the room, and we would work together. Did the buck really stop with him? Did you find that there was much other input from either Bobby Justman or, or certainly later with Gene Alcoon was there or uh, Fred Freiberger. I mean, what? How, how did things change for you when Gene sort of left? Justin was something. Oh, I love that man. He, he knew everything about this stuff. And yeah, he would drive up in his Corvette parked right outside my office. And I, I had the Gorn, one of the early shows. Mm -hmm. yep. I brought in the actor that did the actual Gorn and I had him make me some noises with his mouth and everything. He was a big guy. And uh, the, the trims that I had from the Gorn that I didn't use in the show. And then you take that and you put stuff with it and you speed 
it up or slow it down or whatever and pick out the ones you like. And that's what he went with. But anyway, I made this loop up and we had these old movieolas and I would run this loop when, when Bobby Justin would drive up because Bob loved to get around. <laughs> and I had this loop and it sounded all like somebody throwing up. <laughs> and I'd run and put the loop on and go out and shut the door. And finally, I get a memo from Gene, from uh, Bob Justin. Doug, you've made your point. <laughs> it was funny. Get off it. <laughs> I could tell you some of the stuff that he would pull. It was it was funny. He was he was just a nice guy. I got along good with him. I did some shows with with Justin after that. And, uh, he was fine. I guess with the hours you were working, there had to be that sort of gallows humor because you were work, you were all working so hard at the time. I mean, these were you know seven day weeks. I mean, uh, you know, uh, on on the original pilot, I would get in at seven o'clock, and Gene would be there. And I'm not kidding you, I would get out at 2 o'clock the next morning. Wow. Now that's a long day. Yeah. And you, like you say, you work Saturdays, Sundays, holidays, nothing mattered. And I just, I enjoyed it. I mean, because the people you work, were working with were great. They really were. They were very nice guys. And it seems the reason you and Gene hit it off were not only because of your talent, but also your passion for the material that you shared his enthusiasm for what the show was or could be. I always worried that the right wing were going to get on Gene and everything, but they never did get that much into it because Gene was quite a liberal, and uh, at that time anyway, and the show showed it. I mean, it was it was really I can't explain it. I never had anything as intense as that until I worked on a thing called uh, Max Headroom. Yeah, for ABC in the '80s, sure. Yeah, and uh, I worked on that what in the '80s or something. I retired at '90 because uh, I mean at '60 rather. I'm 90. I'm not 90 yet. <laughs> I'm only 85. But I retired at 60 because I had seven heart bypasses in one operation. Oh, my gosh. And my wife said, I think you should retire. So I did. <laughs> wow. But seven of them at St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica. Dr. John Robertson. Wow. Yeah. And, 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 and you you are nominated for an Emmy for Star Trek, I believe? Uh, yes, the only one. I never put it up again and showed it because we'd have probably won. Mm -hmm. I had 14 nominations and I won five Emmys, but uh, I, I never won one on Star Trek. I just got nominated the first year. And I don't know, I didn't know anything about it. I'll tell you, when I started in the motion picture business, my brother was asking me who was in the movie that I was working on. I said, I don't know any of them. <laughs> John Wayne going out wow. and worked on two shows with him. But one of them had been shot about seven years before. Hughes didn't like it, so he had it in the editing room. And uh, that was Jet Pilot. And I worked on it when we finally released it. But they'd cut all the good air stuff out. I couldn't understand it as a kid. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I came back from combat in Korea. And my brother said, you want to go to work in the motion picture industry. And I, uh, so I 
went over and I met the nicest department head, James Wilkinson from RKO. He had been through every administration. I think I think Jim was head of the department when he was about 23 or 4 or something like that. And, uh, and anyway, that was my boss. Hmm. But he was great. He was just great. Well, let me clarify, because you had said that on the cage, the original pilot, you, you know, it was because you were, you know, Gene ended up using you for sound because he wasn't happy. But what were you originally, what was your role originally on the pilot before you got involved with the sound? Would you, would you say we were the negative cutter or what, what, what? No, I was, I was helping Gene with the obstacles. Oh, okay. Or when they would shoot the stuff at the, on the camera on the Anderson brothers, when they'd shoot it, I would go over and stand by them while they were shooting it, then I would run the stuff for Gene, and then the optical stuff that we would make, the planes and everything. I see, okay. And, and then the kid walked in and spilled the beans thing. Did anyone ever reach out to you from the uh, subsequent shows, like The Next Generation, to sort of ask your advice about anything, or how you did something? Or? Ben Berg did. Okay. <laughs> your, your, your wife has a, has a story she wants to interject. I was, I was working for Glenn Glenn Sound, and Bill Woodstrom was there. And Bill said whenever he brought a sound on the stage, I guess it was one of the, must have been one of the early features. And if somebody didn't like it, he said, oh, but that was Doug's sound. He used it in Star Trek. And they went, oh, okay. So he used that line whenever they didn't like something. <laughs> and that's how he got it to stay in? And he got away with it. Okay, here's Doug. Oh, that's funny. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> my old buddies. <laughs> Well, let me ask you, because there are a couple of other classic sounds, if maybe you remember, you know, how, how you did them. The, the, the um, turbo lift doors, the sliding open and shut, which, of course, paved the way for real sliding doors at every supermarket in America. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I really can't remember too much. I remember I would get a sound, and what I would do was I would pick him up or him back and go the other way. And I'd finally pick one out. Sure. My ear, I would say, yeah, this I like. And I'd take a razor blade and I'd shave it off at either end or something like the door so it fit perfectly. And then what we had to work with was the black and white picture. Mm -hmm, right. And then when the negative was cut and everything, sometimes it would change and I would get so upset because I had stuff fitting so perfect. And then they would throw me because they would cut it different. And, right, right. And so but that's how fast the show was going. We were turning out one a week. Yeah. I mean, I had the guys doing, I would take the hardest energy reel that had the most stuff in it, and one editor would handle that one. The other, they, they, what they did was for negative cutting to eliminate a reel. We used to get a, a show, uh, an hour show with six reels mm -hmm. on film, a 35-millimeter film. Okay. They mounted it differently on five reels. Mm -hmm. What I would do is give the hardest reel to one editor, and then the other two editors had to do two reels apiece. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And, that, and then I handled the stage and made up the sound effects and so forth that they needed. And I made, I took a, uh, the yellow sheet that we used that we made up all the effects. We lined everything up for the stage. And I would take that and I would put what footage just where I wanted certain things to go. And I'd give it that. And they would use that as a guide to edit the stuff in. And I had great editors. Uh, Gil Marchand, uh, Joe Cavigan, and uh, my buddy, he moved up to... Uh, the English guy that made the sauce. Huh? The English guy that made the sauce. No, not the English guy. He was uh, Fred Astaire's music editor. Oh, oh really? George Emick. Okay. There wasn't a better guy around than George Emick. How I got to remind Anyway, George Emick. Great. Everything about, well, he worked on, oh, it's a Western, um, Dimitri Tiamkin. Oh, High Noon. High Noon, yeah, see, there you go. <laughs> okay, he was working on High Noon with Dimitri Tiamkin. He developed the click track that the music editors used. Really? Wow. Yes. He, he was him and another guy that developed the how closely did you work with the composers, the legendary, you have so many great uh, composers on the show? Not too close. I was so busy with the sound. Right. The show on a, uh, look at it in the theater and then it turned over to us. I had to have the thing on the stage Friday and we mixed it all in one day. And we didn't mess around with it. I mean, it was just went. Do you remember at all how the, the the phaser effects or the photon torpedoes were done? You know, those classic, you know, the firing the phasers, the laser weapons, or the photon torpedoes. Those also are unforgettable yeah. sounds. Yeah. I can remember the first phaser I got, I used, when I got on the stage, I had it edited right on the button, right? And it sounded off. So I start telling the mixers, you know, come on, the speed of light, the speed of sound, they're different, you know. And I made Gene come up with me, and I showed him that I had it right on the button. And I moved it up, I think, a frame or frame and a half or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Six pockets or something. And got back down on the stage, and it ran, and it was, sounded great. Do you know where that sound came from, what that sound is? Uh, okay. I remember yeah, and then um, my last question is, how did things change for you when Gene left and Fred Freiberger took over the show? Did you have a different kind of relationship? Did he value sound as much as uh, Gene did? Uh, no, not. Um, I work with Gene most of the time, so I didn't really work with the other producers. Right, right, right. Even after Gene left the show? No, I, I still work. I work with Gene, and then after that, I was working with Milkus uh, uh, and with... Uh,
really like it. Well, it's a testament to what you did. There are not many shows from the mid-1960s where people still be watching them and, and watching them on Blu-ray and having them, you know, remixed into multi-channel mixes, and it's really incredible. Yeah, really, yeah. I mean, I could have had models of a plane and uh, the, the Enterprise and different things, and I just didn't, you know, I wasn't interested. But then I didn't know, most of the actors or things, I didn't know who they were. I really didn't, I didn't care. I wasn't that much of a motion picture fan, I guess. I used to go down to Hollywood and Vine when I was a little kid, and I used to go across the street on Hollywood Boulevard from the Fantagious, and there was a little theater that played nothing but Westerns, and I'd have my cap pistols on, and you'd check them at the door and go in. <laughs> That is hysterical. Well, Doug, I can't thank you and Marsha enough for finding the time and sort of uh, taking the time to talk to me about this. And we're back. And uh, I think uh, what a what a great uh, what a great thing to have uh, captured his. Uh, thoughts and stories uh, for posterity. Yeah, I was really, really happy to have the chance to uh, talk to him. Because even when um, Ed and I were writing 50-year mission, a lot of the interviews that uh, for TOS were people that Ed talked to. Um, I was doing a lot at the time on some of the other shows. And uh, so I was really excited to be able to talk to uh, to Doug Grindstaff, um, and I think when I did talk to him, it was too late to include in um, in the actual in that book um, mm. at the time. But uh, obviously, it's funny. I was looking back at my archives recently, and I thought, you know, this would be great to um, include. Generally, I like to include new material on our, on the show where both you and I are interviewing people. But uh, given the fact that he passed away, and and you know, he's so significant uh, in terms of his contribution to Star Trek, I felt like it was a uh, worthwhile to. Um, you know, uh, dip into the archives. Absolutely. Now, if I'm feeling very um, masochistic, what I really should do, and I don't think I'm going to do this anytime soon, is I have the cassettes from my interviews on the set of Next Generation hmm. um, from <laughs> when I was on the set of Too Short a Season. Mm. In the first season, as I was still in college at the time, and interviewed the entire cast and and much of the crew, and um, it's almost embarrassing to hear myself at that young age well, uh, do, doing these interviews and hearing my voice. None of us like hearing our past selves. It's not fun at all. But it might be fun because <laughs> you know we're all big enough to take a few insults, and you and I have had our fair share of things we've said about other people. It might be uh, it might be worth me. Um, Trotting out those old tapes before they disintegrate, um, and 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 maybe um, playing some excerpts. I think that to would me. be great. I think that would be great. I want to hear. And it, it's also wonderful to hear the cast talk about Star Trek at that early stage. Yeah. Um, of you know when they had no idea if the show was going to work, but they mostly didn't, and um, you know hear me struggle to ask questions because of course. When I was on set, I had only seen Farpoint and Naked Now. Right. So, so no doubt your, your opinion of the show was fairly low. My, my opinion of the show was fairly low. And there wasn't a whole hell of a lot of stuff to ask people. Yeah. You know, 
Um, didn't know much about. How does it feel to be in space? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. So, um, and uh, so maybe we'll um, we'll we'll we'll, uh, I'll go into the garage and bring out those cassettes. Bring out the gimp. Um, So we'll see. But this is this is great, and I'm I'm glad we could share this with our listeners. And um, from time to time, I think um, we might have to dip into the archives and and uh, listen to. some of these interviews with some of these amazing talents that aren't with us anymore, but uh, we haven't done an interview show in a while. We we spent a lot of time last few months uh, doing our Bible study, which has really been fascinating, and the response has been phenomenal. Yeah. Um, but I definitely want to get back to um, doing some interviews as well. Of course, of course. Yeah. Uh, every to everything there is a time. Yes, there is. <laughs> <laughs> You're correct. Don't you agree, um, Admiral? <laughs> um, so anyway, we want to thank you as always for joining us for another episode of Inglorious Trexperts. Um, of course, in addition to Trexperts, we encourage you to listen to our sister podcast, Trexperts Briefing Room. An entirely different podcast. Entirely different. It's not this podcast. It's not on this feed. You have to go to Trexperts Briefing Room and uh, then you can uh, just be... Uh, uh, you know, uh, fulfilled with wonder and knowledge uh, as we do audio commentaries with special guests from across the Star Trek universe uh, about a variety of episodes. And um, Darren and I have had a lot of fun doing some TOS and TNG and Deep Space Nine episodes recently. And of course, Peter and Lisa have covered the beat on Voyager and Enterprise, and Lower Decks, and um, a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of good stuff happening over there in the briefing room. Covering a and, lot of bases. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, Meanwhile, we hope you'll join us next Friday for another episode of uh, Inglorious Trexperts. We want to thank Bill Ritter, our amazing sound engineer. Uh, again, all, thanks for all his help sort of salvaging the Grindstaff tapes yeah. uh, from the cassette that they were recorded on. Um, and, uh, of course, um, I want to thank Peter Holmstrom, Natalie Biscali, Zach Raggett, our producers. And uh, we want to thank you, the audience, uh, for joining us for another episode, even though we're mean to Star Trek Three. So, <laughs> but uh, we look forward to, to, to seeing you next Friday here, in, here on Inglorious Treks. But until then, keep on trekking ingloriously, of course. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.